the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. We're visiting with Pastor Dave Clark, Senior Pastor of Living Hope Neighborhood Church in the city of Richmond. Pastor Clark, a delight to have you with us. And as we lead off the conversation today, maybe you can take a moment and Share with us a little bit of the the very rich and diverse spiritual journey that you have been on. My goodness, we we see everything from economic studies to overseas missions involvement. Tell us how did God begin all of that journey for you? The gospel message that I had heard uh, as a child just became real to me, and uh, I surrendered my life to Christ, began to really grow uh, in my collegiate years, and even wrestled with um, you know, this, this degree and this uh, coursework that I'm doing, how does it, how does it fit with my new identity and relationship with Christ and, um, pursued business for a little bit, uh, post, post-graduation, but ultimately felt compelled to enter into the ministry and, uh, have been doing that since about 2001. And undoubtedly, some of that skill set down through the years has, has probably served you very well pastoring a local church. You grew up in Michigan. Your journey from Michigan to California, how did that come about? Kind of a crazy journey, actually. So where I grew up in Michigan was a, a small town of about 5,000 people, uh, not culturally or ethnically diverse, a small blue-collar kind of farming town, really. Uh, but then the Lord led me to Chicago and, uh, I went from a small town to the inner city of Chicago. And for those 10 years in the city, uh, God just taught me so much. I I went there to study urban ministry at the Moody Bible Institute at the graduate school. But in many ways, I feel like my master's degree came through people I, I met and through the neighborhood that I lived in. Uh, through the families that I serve, through the teenagers that I work with, through even some of the homeless neighbors that I came to know over those years in that city. And so I, I, I believe in each season, God was preparing me for the next stop. And so then I think my years in Chicago then prepared me to move to the Bay Area and and Richmond. There's obviously a new living curve as uh, some of the cultural dynamics are, are different here, and there's a greater level of ethnic and cultural diversity here than there was where I was living in Chicago. Uh, But it's been cool just to see God's faithfulness in using each place to prepare me for the next season. When Californians think of Michigan, we think of the Motor City. We think we think of the capital of the automobile, and sure. probably forget that that's just a small segment, actually, from a from a geographical standpoint of what right. Michigan is. And there is a lot of farming towns and things of that sort. So for you, it, that that must have been quite the experience in beginning to transition from growing up in a small town of five thousand people to suddenly finding yourself in these large metropolitan and very diverse hubs from. Chicago to eventually San Francisco. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my dad would take us on little weekend excursions into Chicago and uh or even into Detroit for games and I don't know what it was, I just always had a fascination and love for cities even though that wasn't that was a far cry from where I was growing up. There was something compelling to me about cities. Uh and then also um, by God's grace, God gave me friendships uh, with people of different racial and cultural backgrounds throughout my growing up years. And then on the college campus, uh, as an athlete, I built relationships with different students uh, of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And then I also uh, I joined the gospel choir uh, on my college campus. And so I had grown up in a small town, mostly white 
uh, community and church. And in my college years through the gospel choir, I was introduced to the black church tradition and uh, to new songs and uh, a new style of worship that wasn't something I had grown up with. And so uh, the way I describe it, I, I had some great people who discipled me in the scriptures, but I believe that my friends and brothers and sisters in the gospel choir began to disciple me cross-culturally. I, I just just grew and learned so much, and I think those experiences then prepared me and shaped me to continue to be a cultural learner in Chicago and now in the Bay. There's a sense of diversity in terms of your ministerial approach in that it's not just, well, we have a service every Sunday morning at 11. You're welcome to come. You guys have literally gone out into the communities. You are involved in youth ministry. You have a very vibrant food pantry, food distribution program. Tell us a bit about that. And as folks are eavesdropping on our conversation today saying, you know, I like what Pastor Clark has had to share. And this is the kind of church that's just engaged in in grassroots impact. Tell us a bit about what God is doing at Living Hope. I think uh, in different seasons of the ministry here, we've we've just tried to be faithful to serve our neighborhood in different ways. And then through those service opportunities and relationships, God has oftentimes opened up doors for further ministry. So for example, a few years ago, I was volunteering at the local elementary school that now my daughters attend, but I, I was volunteering there I got to meet some of the other parent volunteers. And when the when the shutdown happened, the COVID shutdown happened, they approached me. They had been doing a grocery distribution at the school. But when the campus was closing because of COVID, they could no longer do it there. So they came to me and said, Pastor Dave, could we use the church parking lot to do this grocery distribution twice a week? And we would just need a little bit of storage uh, space for some tables. And so, you know, I said, absolutely. And so this grocery distribution has been happening twice a week, uh, every Wednesday and Friday uh, since March of 2020. But that really stemmed from this service at the local school that led to this relationship with these neighborhood moms, which then translated to this uh, grocery distribution that we have been doing for the last three years, um, and that has really served as a blessing to our community. Uh, another example of that is years ago at the church, there was a men's Bible study on a Saturday. On one particular Saturday, there was a homeless man on the steps. He asked if he could come in for the Bible study and breakfast, and they invited him in. Uh, he came and had a good breakfast, stayed for Bible study. They began to build a relationship with this man. And that's going back to 2006. What began to develop is every Saturday, they just kept saying, if you know anyone else who needs a good breakfast on a Saturday morning, invite them to come. And so that was the origin of our Saturday ministry that now has kind of expanded in that we not only have breakfast here, but we also go out but it just kind of happened through just some members faithfully serving, but it opened something up that was broader and, and longer term and impact. As we faithfully serve and build relationships, I think God opens doors for collaboration and ministry. The, and the only thing he requires of us is once he opens the door for us to be bold enough in exercising our faith to walk through that door and to harness that opportunity in order to share the gospel, give that cup of cold water in Jesus' name, so to speak, and then watch and see what the Holy Spirit does. You're meeting at 2800 Ream Avenue in Richmond. Your regular Sunday morning service time is at 11 a.m. And, of course, if folks want to get more information about many of the, the diverse ministries through Living Hope Neighborhood Church of Richmond, you can check them out online at LHN, think Living Hope neighborhood church lhn church dot org or you can call the church directly at area code five ten two three three seventy three fifty three that's five one zero two three three seven three five three someone's eavesdropping on our visit today pastor and they're thinking you know what i i like what pastor dave has had to share today extend a personal invitation if you would to that individual 
We'd love to have you visit with us on a Sunday morning. You just heard that our service is at 11 a.m. But beyond that, like if you ever want to just grab coffee and and just talk and think through things and, and pray together, I'm I'm open to that. Uh, I, I live in the community right here where the church is, and I just try to be uh, available in those ways. And so uh, my email address is on the website. Shoot me an email. I, I'd love to talk, grab coffee, grab a lunch, and um, see how we can encourage one another. Again, Living Hope Neighborhood Church, 2800 Ream Avenue in Richmond. Service time Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. And complete details available on the web at lhnchurch.org. If you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you or on your phone, I'd love it if you would open up with me to John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't, didn't bring a Bible today, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can grab one there. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42 this morning. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. The message is entitled, Following Jesus into the Harvest. Following Jesus into the Harvest. At Living Hope Neighborhood Church, we exist to give our lives to make disciples for the glory of God. And we have three pillars that inform and empower and undergird our mission, and they are gospel, gather, and go. The gospel is our up pillar, gather is our in pillar, go is our out pillar. And so this month, March, and this is the final Sunday of our Go Month. So I again want to remind us of our Go statement from our DNA document. It reads as following. The gospel compels us to be a family on mission together locally and globally. The Lord has commissioned his followers to preach the gospel and to make disciples The gospel is the fuel that propels us to do evangelism, acts of mercy and compassion, and to contend for justice on behalf of others. So again, go is our out pillar. It's about movement towards the hurting world. The gospel has made us a family, yes. It's made us a family who are to live on mission together. As I said a couple of weeks ago, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been called and commissioned to make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is for all of us. Or as I said a couple of weeks ago, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time gospel ministry wherever you do life and wherever you have relationships. All of us are in full-time gospel ministry. And I want to start with a quote this morning from an author named David Mathis that I think reflects some of what I've been praying for us this month. He says, we only go so deep with Jesus until we start yearning to reach out. When our life in him is healthy and vibrant, We not only ache to keep sinking our roots deep in him, but we also want to stretch out our branches and extend his goodness to others. But not only does going deep in Jesus soon lead us to reach out to others, but also reaching out leads us deeper into him. In other words, getting on board with Jesus' mission to disciple the nations may be the very thing that he uses to push through your spiritual lethargy and jumpstart your stalled sanctification. In other words, as we go out towards others sharing the love of Christ in word and deed, God will begin to do something in us. He will stretch us. He will make us uncomfortable He will cause us to depend more on him. And through that, we'll grow closer to Jesus. So it's suggesting that maybe if you feel stuck, you feel plateaued, 
in your walk with Christ, the question is, well, have you been reaching out to others with the gospel? Maybe that's why you're stuck. Or maybe, as Dr. Zamede said last week, maybe you say, I just, I don't, I don't feel his presence. I don't feel that he's near. And he said, well, maybe when you start to move towards others, the Great Commission at the end says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. So I'm praying just that, that last part. That God would jumpstart our stalled sanctification, if that's us. That the Holy Spirit would disrupt us. Disrupt us out of our comfort zones and move us towards others. I'm praying that we would get on board with the mission of Jesus, all of us, together. So let me just pray before we jump into God's word together. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word together this morning, we pray and ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would be our teacher during this time and that you would lead us in the scriptures to what you have for us this morning. I pray that as we observe the life of Jesus in this encounter, that we would be amazed by him, that we would be in awe of Jesus, that we would be reminding, uh, reminding ourselves of maybe our first encounter with Christ. And Lord, I pray that that would do something to our hearts this morning. Lord, expand our hearts, we're asking. Give us a greater love for you and a greater love for our neighbors. Show us places, Lord, where we've hardened our hearts and closed off our hearts to others, God. And would you do a healing and a restorative work by your spirit this morning that our hearts might be reopened and expanded. Fill us with your love and compassion for people. So lead us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, but I pray that your word would be clear for your glory and for our good and for our joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read this morning from John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 38, and then we'll come back. And pick up verses 39 through 42 at the end. It said, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is, speak, is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming, or they went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. First of all, it tells us at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is going to travel from the south to the north. He's been in Judea, but the Pharisees are stirring up some stuff again. They're making a big deal about something that's not a big deal. They're keeping stats on who's baptized more, John or Jesus, and trying to make it a big deal. But Jesus, as he so often does, he he won't get into something so petty. He's got bigger things to do, and he decides that it's time to travel from the south to the north, from Judea to Galilee. I want us to see it just geographically on the map. You see Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, and it would have been a three-day journey by foot from Judea to Galilee. But don't miss verse 4 where it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, That word in the Greek communicates that it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. And maybe we could just think, well, he was in the south. He was going to the north uh, in between the Samaria. And so maybe it was just geographical necessity. But I want us to hold on to that question. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Let's keep looking together says that he was traveling through 
with his disciples and he came to the town called Sikar. And this particular geographic location had biblical and historical significance. The text says that it was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. Uh, Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the faith, one of the fathers of the faith for the people of Israel. And the Samaritans looked to Jacob as well. And so Jesus is passing through Sakar. He stops at this historically significant well because he's tired. It was about the sixth hour of the day, which would have been the noon hour. So it's in the heat of the day. And it says that a woman from Samaria came to draw water from this well that Jesus was sitting next to. And Jesus speaks up and asks her to get him a drink of water. Now we're told at this point, his disciples aren't with him. They went on to the next city to get some food. So it's just Jesus and the woman at the well. He asks her for water. She doesn't quite know what to do with that. Uh, Not just by the question itself, but because of who was asking her that question. At this point, she didn't know that Jesus was a pretty big deal. She just could observe that he was Jewish. And so she was a bit taken back that a Jewish man was asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And she was shocked that he even spoke to her at this point. That's why she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And she adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were an ethnically mixed people. They had part Jewish ancestry, and they had part Gentile ancestry. And not only that, the Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Beyond that, though, they didn't really recognize the remaining books of the Old Testament. They just stuck with the Pentateuch, and they had their own version of the Pentateuch. So they were religiously different. They had their own temple. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. No, they had a temple on Mount Gerizim. They worshiped in a different place. Not only that, when it came to Israelite history, they had a different perspective on history. They viewed things differently. And so they were ethnically different culturally different, and religiously different. And Jewish people despised Samaritans. They viewed them as idolaters. They viewed them as apostates. They thought that they were more likely to be demonized, that is, possessed by demons, They viewed them to be ceremonially unclean. They had no dealings with them. In fact, if you look at the map again, a lot of Jewish people, when they were going south to north or north to south, would actually cross the Jordan River and go to the east side of the river and travel up the east side of the Jordan River to avoid Samaria altogether. That was a common practice. Yeah, it would have been a shorter route to go through Samaria, but they avoided Samaria because they wanted to avoid Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people either. Uh, The Samaritans felt as if they were the true faithful descendants of Israel. And they oftentimes were hostile and unwelcoming towards Jewish people who did travel through Samaria. 
So don't miss the significance of Jesus' actions. In the midst of a cultural climate of racial prejudice and hostility and fear of the other and polarization and intentional segregation, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Don't you love that about Jesus? Like any of the social divisions and constructs of his day, he would take no part in it. He crossed all types of lines in order to share his love and hope in both word and deed. I can't help but noticing that in our day and age, our culture seems similar to theirs. I know there are some differences. But there's great hostility in this cultural moment. There's great division in this cultural moment. There's great fear of the other. There's great intentional segregation. All of the factors then exist now. And so what does that mean for us to be a follower of Jesus in this moment? It means we are to be those who cross lines of ethnicity and culture and religious difference and share the love of Christ in both word and deed. It means we follow Jesus into the marginalized and forgotten and avoided areas of our neighborhood and city to share the love of Christ in word and deed. It means that we follow him in seeing all people as created in the image of God and in need of a relationship with Him. There are no unclean peoples in today's world. There are no people to be avoided. There are no non-neighbors for us. We follow Him To share his love with people of different socioeconomic status, different countries of origin, and different languages. We follow him to share his love in both word and deed with the LGBTQ community. We follow him to share his love in word and deed with refugees and immigrants and men and women coming out of prison. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace and no one is beyond the need of God's grace. So if we follow Jesus, we're some line crossers. We cross the barriers and constructs that society has built up in order to share the love of Christ in both word and deed. So let's just pause and do a heart check this morning. Who do we view as Samaritans in our world today? Who do we intentionally avoid? Who are we afraid of? Who do we just not like? And let's ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to break our hearts for all people. Let's ask God to fill us with the compassion of Christ for the people whom we try to avoid. Secondly, notice Jesus initiated a conversation. It's so simple, like we can easily breeze right past it. But he met this woman on her own turf, in her neighborhood, so to speak. He simply asked her for a drink of water and and, and initiated a conversation. I've been challenged and convicted this week. I'll just speak for me personally, but maybe this is you too. I just think sometimes we are so busy We miss opportunities to have conversations with people. 
in the grocery store, on our jobs, at the park, at the gym, at the coffee shop, wherever we kind of do life, I'm just convicted and challenged. For me, I just feel like sometimes God might have conversations available and neighbors to be loved, but I've got places to go. I got things to do. Or maybe you ever sit in a grocery store when the line is long? You ever notice what most of the people are doing in grocery store lines now? I'm just wondering if we're so distracted by the digital world that we're missing opportunities to love our neighbors in the real world. We're so secluded and privatized. I'm just wondering if God was bringing people across our path, would we even see them? Jesus meets this woman on her turf and engages her in a conversation by first making a request and asking a question. Then the conversation gets pretty interesting, right? He tells her, if you truly knew who I am, you actually would have asked me for water. He says that I would have given you living water. This is another thing that Jesus does in his interactions with people. He uses the physical to point to the spiritual. He uses the temporal, that which we can see in time and space, to point to the eternal. And this living water statement perplexed her. She responded by kind of stating the obvious, sir, you don't even have anything to draw water with. You, you've come to the well with no bucket, so to speak. And the well is deep. But then she adds, but where do you get that living water? Now, remember, they're having a conversation at Jacob's well. Jacob was a, a big deal, a father in the faith. And so she questions, uh, are you greater than Jacob? And she says, after all, Jacob gave us this well and he used to drink here. And notice what Jesus says to her in 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This sounded pretty good to her. She says, paraphrasing, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I won't have to keep coming back to this well. And Jesus tells her, go and get your husband. And then come back to get some of this living water. And she told Jesus that she didn't have a husband. And at this moment, the conversation gets interesting again. Jesus said, you're telling the truth about not having a husband. And he says, I I know that you've been married five times. And the man that you are currently living with is not your husband. Now, sometimes we read this, and from our cultural vantage point, it's like, oh, Jesus is setting her up. He's setting her up to shame her. He's got her now. Like, we kind of read it like that, right? Like, gotcha. Brilliant, Jesus. You asked her about the, oh, she's stuck. She's trapped. You got her. Like, that's what our culture likes to do, right? That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus fully knows this woman's story. And he's not repelled by her. He's not disgusted by her. He's not setting her up to shame her. Divorce is a painful thing, right? 
Imagine being divorced five times. Think of the pain, the regret, and the shame that comes with that. Not only that, at that time, a woman couldn't initiate a divorce. Only men could initiate a divorce. Imagine feeling discarded that many times. Not only that, it was an honor and shame culture. Think of what that would have done for her reputation in her community. Think of the shame and stigma attached to that. Not only that, she was currently living with a man who was not her husband. She was living in an immoral situation. But Jesus knew all of it. He fully knew her story. And yet, what was he doing? He was drawing near with gentleness and love and mercy and offering her what she desperately needed. Living water for her thirsty soul. She had been looking to relationships to fill a void that only Christ could fill. And sin had left her empty. Sin had left her broken. Sin had left her ashamed. He was drawing near to her to provide something that she truly needed. The prophet Jeremiah spoke about this human propensity for all of us to look to other things and relationships and possessions and pursuits rather than turning to God, the source of living water. Listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. We do the same thing today, don't we? Broken cisterns. In John chapter 7, 37 and 38, it says on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, if you will turn and put your trust in me, I will forgive you of your sin. And I will give you eternal life and the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. And it'll it'll be like a well of ever flowing water out of your heart. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling broken and beat down by your sin. Come to Jesus this morning. If you're here this morning and your past and your present sins have left you overwhelmed with shame and unsatisfied and empty, come to Jesus this morning. If you're weary and tired from the brokenness of this world and your own brokenness, come to Jesus this morning. No earthly relationship can satisfy us. No possession can satisfy us. No vocational pursuit, no educational attainment, no promotion on your job will ultimately satisfy you. No high, no matter what you drink or smoke or how much you drink or smoke, it's always going to bring you back down, feeling empty again. But not Jesus. Let me read the words again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Going back to Jesus and the woman at the well, she's shocked that he knows her story. She's determined this guy's a prophet. And she Somewhat changes the conversation a little bit, but she says she told him that Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, but Jewish people worship in uh, Jerusalem. They believe in different places of worship. But what did Jesus do? 
He let her know that the hour was coming when true worship will not be tied to nor limited by a location. And he tells her that salvation is of the Jews. What did he mean by this? That the Old Testament scriptures were pointing ahead to a coming Savior and Messiah. That Jesus himself was born a Jewish man. Salvation is of the Jews. This wasn't a statement to make her feel inferior. This was another welcome towards salvation that he came to offer. He adds, the hour is here. Because he's come to die for sinners. He's come to offer a way back to the Father. He's come to provide the means by which our sins can be forgiven and we can be washed clean. He's come to lift our condemnation and our fear of coming judgment. He's come to take the judgment for us. And it's through a relationship with Christ that the spirit of God resides within us. That we might worship him in spirit and in truth. I like what the ESV study Bible says says, says Jesus is inaugurating a new age in which people will not have to travel to a physical temple in one city to worship, but will be able to worship God in every place because the Holy Spirit will dwell in them and therefore God's people everywhere will become the new temple where God dwells. Notice the woman's response. She says, I know That Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Now, Jews and Samaritans believe some different things about Messiah. But they both had messianic hope. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one you've been looking for and waiting for. And at this moment, it says that his disciples show back up on the scene. And they're shocked. One thing, Jesus was a rabbi and rabbis didn't speak to women in public. But not only is he speaking to a woman in public, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman in public. He, they are floored. Uh, but they don't really say anything about it. At this point, she leaves her water at the well, goes back to her town and says to her community, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the town was excited. They started to travel to where he was. Meanwhile, his disciples are urging Jesus to eat. Rabbi, eat. But Notice again, he uses the physical to point to the spiritual. He used the temporal to speak to the eternal. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying, guys, I'm here on mission. I'm here on purpose. I'm here. This is a business trip, guys. I'm about my father's business. And then he speaks of a common agricultural practice of sowing and reaping. Typically, when you would sow, when you would plant seed, you had to be patient with the process. You would sow, but then you had to wait. And he indicates usually four months before you reap a harvest. But notice what he says in verse 35. He says, look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest or the fields are ripe for harvest. He's saying, guys, lift up your eyes. I I know you hate Samaria, but God is at work here. The harvest is now, here and now. And he says, fruit is being gathered for eternal life here. And that is reason to rejoice. He's letting them know it's, it's harvest time. And he's inviting them into the labor of the harvest. 
He's inviting us into the labor of the harvest. But notice that he said that there were there was some prior labor that had happened. Like they were they were stepping into something that has already been begun. What was he alluding to there were from one perspective, the Old Testament authors and prophets have been speaking and pointing ahead to the coming of Messiah. They had labored in the past. And then John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he too was preparing people and pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. And then Jesus showed up on the scene and he's begun to labor in the harvest. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm welcoming you into this harvest work and God is already at work here. John 4, 37 and 38, he said, For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Dr. Tony Evans says it may take several encounters with the gospel delivered through more than one messenger before a person believes it. One Christian explains the gospel to another believer, and later another Christian eventually leads that unbeliever to Christ. That should encourage us. That when we step out to witness to others and engage in gospel conversations, we don't know what God has been up to in that person's life leading up to that conversation. And I don't know about you, but I've spoke to some people and they've said things like, this is crazy. You won't believe what God has been doing in my life leading up to this. And so God is at work. We're just we're just stepping into what he's already doing. But it takes the the labor of all of us. It made me think this week. If you were to say, Pastor Dave, well, who led you to Christ? I made a list this week and I would say, oh, about 15 people. I just put the list up. My parents and grandparents prayed for me, shared the gospel with me and demonstrated their faith before me. Mrs. Olson was one of my early elementary Sunday school teachers. Fred DeYoung was one of my early elementary Sunday school teachers. Paul and Judy Merrill were my uh, children's church leaders. Dania Jewett was one of my Awana leaders when I was elementary school. My Aunt Debbie would take me to church with them and would share things about Christ. Then Mrs. Brooks was an upper elementary Sunday school teacher. Then Matt and Teresa Ertl, that was my soccer coach and his wife. Then my cousin Ben had a role. And then finally, a guy with the crazy name Donnie Wallenfang, who lived across the hall from me and just lived such a powerful witness for Christ in front of me. God used every single one of those people to draw me to himself. May that encourage us. It doesn't all fall on you. You won't be perfect in your witness. You'll fumble your words. You'll feel socially awkward. You'll wish you would have asked another question or said something different. But guess what? God can work through us. And God desires to work through us. God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. Let's finish with John 4, 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman simply testified to her relational network about Jesus. She wasn't a Bible scholar. She wasn't a deeply rooted theologian at this point. She hadn't been to seminary. 
She hadn't been in a BSF class. She she wasn't going to Sunday school, but what did she do? She simply testified about Jesus. She simply said, I've met someone and I've never met anyone else like him. Come and see. And her simple testimony sparked curiosity amongst others. And they simply came to see and hear. And then they said, it's not just because of what your testimony. We've seen and heard from ourselves that this man is indeed the savior of the world. She testified, it sparked spiritual curiosity, and people came to know and believe in Jesus. So let's just finish with some application questions. I asked this two weeks ago. Where are your fishing spots? And for those of you who need a point of reference... I was in Hayward with another pastor and he was giving us a tour of his city and he alluded to a couple of spots, one outside a liquor store, uh, one was a homeless encampment and he, he called them their fishing spots. He said these are places and people we go to regularly to pray with and share the good news with. And so I ask all of us, where are your fishing spots? A related question is, who and where are you regularly praying for and talking to about Jesus? And I said before, that's a good question that we we just need to keep that in front of us, right? Because we easily slide back into comfortable routines. It can easily be days and weeks. But who are we regularly praying for? Third question, are you slowing down? Maybe that's a major application. I just need to slow down and be present when I'm around people. Maybe I shouldn't take my phone into the store. Maybe I shouldn't take my phone on the walk or whatever the case is. I want to be present. I don't want to be so busy. And lastly, are we testifying to our relational networks about Jesus and inviting others to come and see? I'll just close with this. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to come down and be where we were. We say he met us on our turf. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He fully saw us. He fully knew our story, and yet he loved us enough to die for us. So in light of his great love, his grace and mercy and his compassion towards us, then we go out, we leave our comfort in order to meet people where they are and meet them on their turf and engage in conversations and share the love of Christ with them with our words and with our actions. Amen. Pastor Dave Clark, lead pastor at Living Hope Neighborhood Church of Richmond. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website, to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.